0: You're listening to Allen, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Barry Eads Marooned Under the Sea, Part 2, by Paul Ernst, Section 14 We thought for a while that these great blobs of cold life were the largest creatures of the depths. It was soon made clear to us how mistaken that notion was. For a time we gazed spellbound at the nightmare assortment of grotesqueries that gradually assembled around us, attracted no doubt by our light. The things were mainly sightless and of indescribable shape. Most of them were phosphorescent, and they avoided collisions in a way that suggested that they had some buried sense of light perception. As time passed, the professor emptied his camera, refilled it several times, and groaned that he had no more film. Twice as we drifted along, I raised us to keep us clear of a gradual upward slope of the smooth floor. Stanley removed his mouthpiece long enough to suggest that we go back to the surface. We had been submerged for nearly four hours now. But before we could reply, a violent movement was felt. The ball rocked and twirled so that we were forced to cling to the circular bench to avoid being thrown to the floor. It was as though a hurricane of wind had suddenly penetrated the unruffled depths. "'Earthquake?' called Stanley. "'Don't know,' answered the professor. He swung the searchlight in an arc and focused it at length on something that appeared only as a field of blurred movement. He wiped the moisture from the wall before the lens, and there was revealed to us a sight that makes my heart pound even now when I recall it to memory. Something vast and serpentine had ventured too near the bottom and had been caught by the death-traps there. The creature was a writhing mass of gigantic coils. It was impossible even to guess at its length, but its girth was such that the mound-shaped monsters that had fastened to it could not entirely encircle it. There it twined and knotted, a mighty serpent of the deepest ocean, snapping its awful length and threshing its powerful tail in an effort to dislodge the giant leeches that were flattened against it and every time it touched the bottom in its blind frenzy, more of the teeming death-traps attached themselves to it, crawling over their fellows in an effort to find unoccupied areas. Soon the sea-serpent was a distorted creeping mass. For one appalling instant its head came into our view. It resembled the head of a crocodile, only it was ten times larger and covered with scale like the armor-plate of a destroyer the jaws wide open and slashing with enormous needle-shaped teeth at the huge parasites were large enough to have held our glass sphere one eye appeared it was at least three feet across and of a shimmering amethyst color one of the deadly saucers wrapped itself around the great head the entire mass of attackers and attacked settled slowly to the bottom but before it completely succumbed the beaten monster gave one last convulsive flick of its tail "'Good God!' cried Stanley, shrinking away from the pump and staring upward. I followed his gaze with my own eyes. In the faint reflected glow of the searchlight, I could see row on row of large cups flattened against the top of the ball. As I watched, these flattened still more, and the big sphere quivered perceptibly. In its death-struggle, the mighty serpent had flicked one of the huge leeches against us. It now clung there with blind tenacity— covering nearly two-thirds of our shell with the underside of its body. I reached for the control key to send us to the surface. Don't, snapped the professor. The weight! He needed to say no more. My hand recoiled as though the key had been red-hot. The three-quarter-inch cable above us was now sustaining, in addition to its own huge weight, our massive glass ball, and the appalling tonnage of this grim blanket of flesh that encircled us could it further hold against the strain of lifting that combined tonnage through the press of the water almost certainly it could not there was nothing we could do but hang there and discover at first hand exactly what happened to things that were clamped in those mighty living vices the professor turned on the interior bulb the result was ghastly it showed every detail of the belly of the thing that gripped us crowded over its entire undersurface were gristly flattened suckers Now and then a convulsive ripple ran through its surface tissue, and great ridges of flesh stood out. With each squeeze the glass shell quivered ominously, as though the extreme limit of its pressure-resisting power were being reached, and passed. "'A nice fix,' remarked the professor, his calm, dry voice acting like a tonic in that moment of fear. "'If we try to go up, the cable would probably break. If we try to outlast the patience of this thing, we might run out of air.' or actually be staved in. He paused thoughtfully. I suggest, though, that we follow the latter course for a while at least. It would be just too bad if that cable broke, gentlemen." Stanley shuddered and looked at the dirty white belly that pressed against the glass walls on all sides. I vote we stay here for a time. And I was my addition. I relieved Stanley at the pump. He and the professor sat down on the bench. Casting frequent glances at the constricted blanket of flesh that covered us, we prepared to wait as composedly as we might for the thing to give up its effort to smash our shell. The hour that followed was longer than any full day I have ever lived through. Had I not confirmed the passage of time by looking at my watch, I would have sworn that at least twenty hours had passed. Every half-minute I gazed at that weaving pattern of cup-shaped suckers only five feet away trying to see if they were relaxing in their pressure. I attempted to persuade myself that they were, but I knew I was only imagining it. Actually, they were pressed as flat as ever, and the sphere still quivered at regular intervals as the heavy body squeezed in on itself. There was no sign that this blind, mindless patience was becoming exhausted. There was little conversation during that interminable hour. Stanley grinned wryly once, and commented on the creature's disappointment if it actually succeeded in getting at us. "'We'd be scattered all over the surrounding half-mile by the pressure of the water,' he said. "'There'd be nothing left of our pet to feed on but five-foot chunks of broken glass. Not a very satisfying meal. "'We might try to reason with the thing, point out how foolish it is to waste its time on us,' I suggested, trying to appear as nonchalant as he was. "'The professor said nothing.' He was coolly writing in his notebook, describing minutely the appearance of our abysmal captor. Finally I chanced to look down through a section of wall not covered by our stubborn enemy. I wiped the moisture from the glass before the searchlight, so that I could see more clearly. The bottom seemed to be heaving up and down. I blinked my eyes and looked again. It was not an illusion. With a regular dip and rise, we were approaching to within a few feet of the rocky floor and moving back up again. Also, we were floating faster than at any time previous. The bottom was bare again. We had left the crowding, ominous mounds. I waved to the professor. He snapped his notebook shut and stared at the uneasy ocean bottom. I've been hoping I was wrong, he said simply. I thought I felt a wavy motion fifteen minutes ago, and it seemed to me to increase steadily. The three of us stared at each other. You mean, began Stanley with a shudder i mean that the rosa one mile above us is having difficulties a storm judging from our movement it must be a hurricane the length of cable would cushion us from any average wave and we are rising and falling at least fifteen feet my god groaned stanley the rosa is already healed with the weight of us she could never weather a hurricane the plight of the crew above our heads was as clear to us as though we had been aboard with them Should they cut the cable, figuring that the lives of the three of us were certainly not to be set against the thirty on the yacht? Should they disconnect the electric control and try to haul us up regardless? Or should they try to ride out the storm in spite of being crippled by the drag of us? I think if I were up there I'd cut us adrift, said Stanley grimly. Both the professor and myself nodded. Though, he added hopefully, my captain is a good gambler. The cable quivered like a live thing under the terrific strain. At each downward swoop, before the upswing began, there was a sickening sag. "'We no longer have a decision to make,' said the professor. "'Press the key, Martin, and God grant us we can rise with all this dead weight.' And at that instant the crew of the Rosa were also relieved of the necessity for making a decision. At the bottom of one of those long, sickening falls there was a jerk, and we continued on down to the ocean floor. The sphere rolled over, jumbling the equipment in a tangled mess with the three of us in the center, bruised and cut. The light snapped off as the battery connections were torn loose. There we lay at the bottom of Penguin Deep, in an inert sphere that was dead and dark in the surrounding blackness, a coffin of glass to hold us through the centuries. "'Martin,' I heard the professor's voice after a time, "'Stanley, can either of you move? I'm caught.' I'm caught too came Stanley's gasping answer something on my leg feels like it's broken a heavy object was pressing against my body with an effort i freed myself and fumbled in the pitch darkness for the other two lights first commanded the professor the pump you know i do know frantically i scrambled in the dark till i located the batteries they were right side up and still wired together the air grew rapidly foul with no one at the pump Panting for breath, I blundered at the task of connecting the light. After what seemed an eternity, I accomplished it. The light revealed Stanley with an air tank laying across his leg. The mouthpiece of his breathing tube had been forced back over his head, gashing his face in its journey. His face was white with pain. The professor was caught under the heavy bench. I freed him, and together we attended to Stanley, finding that his leg wasn't broken, but only badly bruised. The mound-shaped monster, dislodged possibly by the fall, was nowhere to be seen. I resumed work at the pump, the connections of which were so strongly contrived that they had withstood the shock of the upset. For a moment we were content to rest while the air grew purer. Then we were forced squarely to face our fate. The professor summed up the facts in a few concise words. We're certainly doomed. Here at the bottom of Penguin Deep, were as out of reach of help as though we were stranded on the moon—we're as good as dead right now. "'If we have nothing left to hope for,' whispered Stanley, after a time, we might as well close the air-valves and get it over with at once. No use torturing ourselves.' The Professor moistened his lips. It might be wise, he turned to me. "'What's your opinion, Martin?' But I—I confess I had not the stark courage of these two. "'No, no!' I cried out. Let's keep on living as long as the air holds out. Something might happen. I avoided their eyes as I said it, utterly ashamed of my cowardly quibbling with death. What in the name of God could possibly happen to help us? The professor shrugged dully and nodded. I feel with Stanley that we ought to get it over in one short stab, but we have no right to force you. His voice trailed off. We readjusted our mouthpieces. I turned automatically at the pump and we silently awaited the last suffocating moment of our final doom. As before, attracted by the light, a strange assortment of deep sea life wriggled and darted about us, swimming lazily among the looped coils and twists of our cable which had settled down around us. Among these were certain fish that resembled great porcupines. Spines a foot and a half long, like living knife-blades, protected them from the attacks of other species. They were the only things we saw that were not constantly writhing away from the jaws of some hostile monster, the only things that seemed able to swim about their own affairs without even deigning to watch for danger. Fascinated, I watched the six-foot creatures. Here were we, reasoning humans, supposed lords of creation, slowly but surely perishing, while only a few feet away, one of the lowest forms of life could exist in perfect safety and tranquillity. Then, as I watched them, I seemed to see a difference in some of them. A majority of them had two fins just behind the gill slits, typical fish tails and blunt sloping heads. But now and then I saw a spined monster that was queerly unlike its fellows. Instead of two front fins, these unique ones had two vacant round holes. The head looked as though it had forgotten to grow. Its place was taken by an eyeless, projecting, shield-shaped cap. And there was no tail. Glad to find something to distract my half-crazed thoughts, I studied the nearest of these. They moved slower than their tailed and finned brothers, I noticed. I wondered how they could move at all, lacking in any kind of motive power as they seemed to be. Next instant, the secret of their movement was made clear. Out of the empty fin holes of the creature I was studying crept two long, powerful-looking tentacles. But these were not true tentacles. There were no vacuum disks on them and they moved as though supported by jointed bones, like arms. The arms ended in flat paddles that resembled hands. These threshed the water in a sort of breaststroke, propelling the body forward. Shortly after the arms had appeared, the spiny headcap was cautiously extended a few inches forward from the main shell. Further, it was extended as the head of a turtle might slowly appear from the projection of its bony case, and under it, "'Professor!' I screamed wildly. "'My God! Look!' Both the professor and Stanley merely stared dully at me. I babbled of what I had seen. "'A man! A human-looking thing, anyway! Arms and a head! A man inside a fish's spine hide! Like armor!' They looked pityingly at me. The professor laid his hand on my shoulder. "'Now, now!' he soothed. "'Don't go to pieces!' "'I tell you, I saw it!' I shouted." Then, shrinking from the hysterical loudness of my own voice, I lowered my tone. "'Something that looks human has occupied some of those prickly six-foot shells. I saw arms, and a man's head, I swear it!' "'Nonsense! How could a human being stand the cold, the pressure?' Here I happened to glance at the wall of the shell through which the searchlight shone. "'Look! See for yourself!' Squarely in the rays of the light showed a head projecting from one of the shells and capped with a wide flat helmet of horned bone there were eyes and nose and mouth placed on one side of that head a face there were even tabs of flesh or bony protuberances that resembled ears curious muttered the professor staring it certainly looks human enough to talk but it's only a fish nevertheless see in the throat are gill-slits but the eyes look at them they're not the eyes of a fish and they were not. There was in them a light of reason, of intelligence. Those eyes were roaming brightly over us, observing the light, the equipment, seeming to note our amazement as we crowded to look at it. The sphere rocked slightly. Behind the staring, manlike visitor there was a glimpse of enormous crocodile jaws and huge amethyst eyes. Instantly the head and arms receded, leaving an empty-seeming lifeless shell. An impregnable fortress of spines, The thing drifted slowly away through the twisted loops of cable. "'It certainly looked like,' began Stanley shakily. "'The creature was just a fish,' said the professor, shaking his head at the light in Stanley's eyes. Some sort of giant parasite that inhabits the shells of other fish. He opened the valve of the last air-cylinder, and seated himself resignedly on the bench. We have another half-hour or so. All of us suddenly put our hands out to brace ourselves. The sphere had moved. "'Look at the cable,' called Stanley. We did so. It was moving, writhing away from us over the bottom as though abruptly given life of its own. Coil after coil disappeared into the further gloom. At length the cable was straight. The ball moved again, was dragged a few feet along the rocky floor. Something, possessed of incredible vast power, had seized the end of the steel cable and was reeling us in as a fisherman reels in a trout. Slowly, unsteadily, we slid along the ocean floor. Ahead of us appeared a jagged black wall, a cliff. There was a gloomy hole at its base. Toward this we were being dragged by whatever it was that had caught the end of the cable. Helpless, we watched ourselves engulfed by the murky den. In the beam of the searchlight we saw that the submarine cavern extended on and on for an unguessable depth. The cable, taut with the strain, stretched ahead out of sight. Time had been lost track of during that mysterious, ominous journey. It was recalled to us by the state of the air we were breathing. The professor removed his mouthpiece and cast the tube aside. "'You might as well stop pumping, Martin,' he said quietly. "'We're done. There's no more air in the flask.' We stared at each other, then we shook hands, solemnly, tremulously, taking leave of each other before we departed on that longest of all journeys. The air in that small space was rapidly exhausted. We lay on the floor, laboring for breath, and closed our eyes. The professor, the oldest of the three of us, succumbed first. I heard his breath whistle stertorously, and, glancing at him, saw that he was in a coma. In a moment Stanley had joined him in blessed unconsciousness. I could feel myself drifting off, hammers beat at my ears, daggers pierced my heaving lungs. Hazily I could see scores of the bristly, man-like fish when I opened my eyes and glanced through the walls. It was not one monster then, but many that had brought us to their lair. Abruptly, as though a signal had been given, they all streamed back toward the mouth of the cavern. My eyesight dimmed, the hammers pulsed louder, a veil descended over my senses, and I knew no more. A soft, sustained roar came to my ears. Through my closed eyelids I could sense light. A dank, fishy smell came to my nostrils. I groaned and moved feebly, finding that I was resting on something soft and pleasant. Dazedly I opened my eyes and sat up. An exclamation burst from me as I suddenly remembered what had gone before, and realized that somehow, incredibly, I was still living. Feeling like a man who has waked from a nightmarish sleep to find himself in his tomb, I gazed about. I was in a long, lofty rock chamber, the uneven floor of which was covered with shallow pools of water. The further end was of smooth grained stone that resembled cement. The near end was rough like the walls, but in it there was a small symmetrical arch, the mouth of a passage leading away to some other point in the bowels of the earth. The place was flooded with clear light that had a rosy tinge. From my position on the floor I could not see what made the light. It streamed from a crevice that extended clear around the cave, parallel with the floor, and about twelve feet above it. From this groove, along with the light, came the soft roaring hiss. Beside me was the glass ball, the cover off and laying a few feet away from the opening and the top. There was no trace of Stanley or the professor. I rose from my couch, a thick mattress-like affair of soft, pliant hide, and walked feebly toward the small arch in the near end of the cave. Even as I approached it I heard footsteps, and voices resounded in some slurring musical language. Half a dozen figures suddenly came into view. They were men, as human as myself. Indeed, as I gazed at them, I felt inclined to think they were even more human. They were magnificent specimens. The smallest could not have been less than six feet three, and all of them were muscular and finely proportioned. Their faces were arresting in their expression of calm strength and kindliness. They looked like gods, arrayed in soft, thick, beautifully tanned hides, in this rosy-tinted hole a mile below the ocean's top. They stared at me for an instant, then advanced toward me. My face must have reflected alarm, for the tallest of them held up his hand, palm outward, in a peaceful gesture. The leader spoke to me. Of course the slurred, melodious syllable meant nothing to me. He smiled and indicated that I was to follow him. I did so, hardly aware of what I was doing, my brain reeling in an attempt to grasp the situation. How marvelous, how utterly incredible to find human beings here! How many were there? Where had they come from? How had they salvaged us from Penguin Deep? I gave it up, striding along with my towering guards like a man walking in his sleep. At length the low passageway ended, and I exclaimed aloud at what I saw. I was looking down a long avenue of buildings, all three stories in height. There were large door and window apertures, but no doors nor window panes. In front of each house was a small square, with wonder of wonders, a lawn of whitish-yellow vegetation that resembled grass. In some of the lawns were set artistic fountains of carved rock. I might have been looking down any prosperous earthly subdivision, save for the fact that the roofs of the houses were the earth itself which the building walls, in addition to functioning as partitions, serve to support. Also earthly subdivisions aren't usually illuminated with rosy light that comes softly roaring from jets set in the walls. We were walking toward a more brightly lighted area that showed ahead of us. On the way we passed intersections where other, similar streets branched geometrically away to right and left. These were smaller than the one we were on indicating that ours was Main Street in this bizarre submarine city. Faces appeared at door and window openings to peer at me as we passed, and even in that jumbled moment I had time to realize that these folk could restrain curiosity better than we can atop the earth. There was no hubbub, no running out to tag after the queerly dressed foreigner and shout humorous remarks at him. We approached the bright spot I had noticed from afar, It was an open square, about a city block in area, in the center of which was a royal-looking building covered with blazing fragments of crystal, and so brilliantly resplendent with light that it seemed to glow at the heart of a pink fire. I was led toward this, and in through a wide doorway. As courteously as though I were a visiting king, I was conducted up a great staircase, down a corridor set with more of the sparkling crystals, and into a huge low room. There my escort bowed and left me. End of section 14